0: and we are rolling once again on the writer files podcast we have a special edition of the show uh, with return serial guest adam skolnick uh, who's here to rap with us once again uh, in a special edition that we usually call writer porn so this is kind of more writer porn with our international correspondent. How are you today, buddy?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, I thought it uh, kind of an interesting time to have you back on the show. You've been been of course all over the globe um, doing your thing, and had the opportunity to get you back on. So uh, I think this is your fourth visit.
1: I think so. I'm I'm feeling. Uh... Feeling like a, one of those guests that just keeps coming over, yeah, you can't stop it. <laughs> like
0: the neighbor who just shows up like, uninvited and hey, hangs out. That. Yeah.
1: As a, as a international correspondent of some sort, I, I've done that in more than one occasion to more than one person where you just like turn up, just turn, turn up again. <laughs> like a bad, like a bad penny. Is that what they say? I'm the bad penny. That's You're it. Bad Hashtag penny. bad penny.
0: hashtag it people um so if you don't know who adam skolnick is he is an award-winning journalist um author and uh bad penny and he lives the itinerant life of a uh, travel journalist and um yeah he's back to to tell us a little bit about his travels and um catch us up and uh talk a little bit bit about his new book which we will be getting into shortly and also um just to rap with me about whatever more writer porn. So uh, let's get into it. I think the first thing I wanted to ask you about was this great article you did for Playboy. Um, It is on your own website, but uh, I will link to both um, the Playboy edition and your own uh, unedited edition, which is about a pretty fascinating subject, um, Hyperloop, which is a uh, project dreamed up by... Elon Musk? Do we say Elon or?
1: I believe we do. Yeah,
0: we do say Elon. Um, Elon Musk, uh, uh, entrepreneur and uh, highly su- successful owner of Tesla and many other. Tesla, others.
1: SpaceX, um, you know, Solar City got f- folded into Tesla. So Tesla's now the cars, but it's also the solar batteries and the solar panels, the whole solar system. Oh, wait, solar system, not <laughs> the whole solar system. A system of solar power. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and yeah, obviously SpaceX.
0: Yeah. So um, the, the article is fascinating. Um, the title, uh, High Speed American Dreams, was your original title. I think uh, Playboy used Hyperloop and a hate crime, two stories of American innovation and immigration. So you were out there and you got to actually see elon uh up close and and hear him talk and uh tell us a little bit about this fantastic story um i mean hyperloop was in the news and elon is in the news it seems like almost weekly um you know based on just his kind of innovative um science so what was going on out there and and kind of just catch us up a little bit about this uh trip out to the desert
1: yeah so uh it wasn't the desert, but I'll tell you a little bit about the the whole thing. So, uh, "High-Speed American Dreams" actually was Playboy's headline as well in the print edition. I don't know what the the online edition might have a different one, or that's a tagline. But when um, credit where credits due, that's that's theirs, and it's a good one. Um, and the story itself is, like you said, it's about one team that competed in a Hyperloop competition that was sponsored by SpaceX. And the Garmin engineers who were shot in Olathe, Kansas. So those are the two groups of engineers that I kind of profile in this story. And it started because um, I'd heard from um, about Hyperloop for the first time just after the new year. And a friend of mine was saying how she just kind of turned down an opportunity to, to try to get a job with Hyperloop One which is a for-profit business around this technology, Hyperloop. So Hyperloop technology is a system of basically it's pneumatic tube transport. That is a tube where the atmosphere that the, the air pressure is sucked out of the tube so that you can transport things more seamlessly with less atmospheric resistance. Um, that's it's a good a good example of that is you know those old school um, mailing systems in office buildings where you drop yeah. a letter and it gets sucked down into the mailroom. That's basically the same principle. And since the turn of the century, there's been a handful of people who've tried to make that work in, in a rail like system. So kind of like a train would let less atmospheric resistance to improve energy efficiency. Right. And, um, Elon Musk kind of got into it after in California, there was a, a uh, A uh, an initiative high speed high speed rail initiative that passed that was going to provide a lot of money to build high speed rail between Los Angeles and San Francisco something a lot of people had been advocating for for years and we were always wondering where's our you know next level rail we're stuck with this kind of antiquated Amtrak system that is not efficient and is expensive and not even that safe Um, why don't we have something like the Eurostar between London and Paris like where's the America's version of that Hmm. and Um, and so this was seen as this great thing for rail, this new, this new system. And Elon Musk is like, that's crazy. Like, why are we doing the same old thing that still will be inefficient? That will still be inexpensive when for a fraction of that money, we can build something new and, and create the most energy efficient transportation system in the world and, and have it be, um, you know and it's not just energy efficient, it would be 100% renewable, so it would be net zero energy, Um, that was his plan. So he created something, uh, he wrote something uh, up that is Hyperloop, basically. He took all these ideas that had been existing and he kind of created his own system and he mimicked that LA to San Francisco route and he put it out as a white paper publicly. He didn't make it something where he was gonna build a business around, so he made it open source. And uh, so that's what where that's where hyperloop where the name comes from, mm-hmm. and that's and that's Elon Musk's version of a system that's been around for a long time that he kind of tailored. Um, so then fast forward, uh, you know, he decided to no, nothing's really happening around hyperloop. A couple of for-profit companies, including Hyperloop One, kind of uh, assembled around this concept. Uh, but there wasn't enough innovation happening for him, and so he decided to create a competition to encourage engineering schools to uh, look at his white paper and bring it into, and 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 create something out of it. Let's get some prototypes going. Let's 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 spark some innovation in this hyperloop field that that he'd created. So he dedicated time and resources through SpaceX to um, create this competition. Thousands of schools all over the world, uh, engineering clubs clubs that assimilated around just for this competition or excuse me assembled just for this competition uh, they created their own white paper kind of response to Elon Musk's white paper they had and and they that's their filing for this competition based on that they cut down you know to semi-finalists that came to Texas A&M and they had to present their paper to a panel and a handful of those were invited to the finals there were 27 teams in the finals now the finals occurred not too long after the inauguration. And I had just heard about Hyperloop and I thought, okay, let me look into this. What's the story around Hyperloop? And so I happened to call SpaceX media uh, representatives just like a week before uh, the Hyperloop competition finals were happening. And so they said, yeah, you know, come on down, check it out. And I went down for a couple of reasons. One reason was just to, to peer into this new technology. The other reason is that Elon Musk was very vocal being, uh, you know, thinking that he could advise the president, and the president, president Trump was kind of complimentary towards Elon Musk, so it was this like budding bromance <laughs> that seemed right. super weird to a lot of us who were uh, not happy with the results of the election. Uh, at the same time, right before the competition, uh, Trump came out with his first, quote, Muslim ban. And so if you remember that, where all of a sudden, overnight, people weren't gonna be able to get through customs. Yeah. And so there were huge protests at LAX and here, Elon Musk is going to be at SpaceX, which isn't far from from LAX. It's in Hawthorne, so it's not too far from there. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll go down there and see if I can get a quote from Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. At the same time, kind of look at this technology. Uh, when I got there, you know, it was very hard to get to to uh, Elon, uh, but it was easy to kind of cruise around and, and meet some of the teams. And when I was in, when I was doing that, looking at all the teams, they all had booths. It became very interesting to me that. A lot of these schools that were at the finals were universities from the middle of the country or from states specifically that Trump had won, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Rust Belt states or or whatever. And uh, even those schools, though, the members of those clubs, it was quite diverse. And most of the time it was it was predominantly Indian. Uh, the engineers are prominently Indian and university of Cincinnati was one example. So here I see this great team from the university of Cincinnati and it was, you know, 80% Indian students. And I remember after nine 11, um, you know, it was, it was Indian people that bore the brunt of the kind of backlash, the racist hate crime backlash that happened. It wasn't middle Eastern people. It was, it was mistaken identity kind of crimes that were happening all over the country. And so I just thought, all right, here, here's this group of students, and there was a Jordanian student and a couple of Indian students who I was talking to, and they were super excited about the project. They were happy to be there. And we were talking a little bit about the project, and I asked them how they were feeling about you know, being in Cincinnati right now with all this anti-immigration uh, rhetoric and the Muslim ban and all of that. And they were kind of circumspect. For the most part, they were still optimistic. and. You know, they'd had nothing but support from people in Cincinnati and felt very comfortable, but they kept they were keeping their eye on it. And I just thought, you know, that's those students really interested me. And then, uh, you know, I thought, how can I write about what they're doing, what they're going through? And then three weeks later, there was the shooting of the, the Garmin engineers in, yeah. just outside Kansas City. And I thought, okay, well, that's the story, right? So here, here are these, you know, the Garmin engineers were also graduate students in the United States. Came here to study engineering. And the reason is lots of uh, Indian engineers come here is because it's harder to get into a good or even a public engineering school in India than it is to get into Harvard. That's how hard it is because there are so many people in India. So there are so many people, there are so few universities comparatively, that it's easier for them to get into Harvard. Than it is for them to get into an engineering school in India. That's I mean, that's amazing. that's amazing, right? Yeah, but that's the facts, and so that's why we have so many people that come here and they pay. And they there's you know these graduate students, international students, they're not on scholarship; they're paying to come here. They're they're supporting us. They're supporting communities economically. They're supporting universities, um, and they're innovating. And so I just thought it was very interesting, and so I kind of dropped into that world. I traveled both to Kansas. Uh, about a month after the shooting to to, uh, I met this one of the survivors I met with people at Garmin I met with people throughout the community and then I went to Cincinnati and spent time with the team and it was like it was kind of like one of those weird research trips where when I went to Olathe it was very sad you know it was a couple of days of a lot of sadness and then arriving in Cincinnati and meeting with these students I remembered kind of why, what makes America such a great place. You know, the idealism, the dreams, um, you know, they were such a great personification of the American dream that it inspired me. So kind of, you know, meeting these international students in their element who had done something nobody else had done. And um, not only that, but they reinvigorated my own love and faith in this idea of the American dream. Uh, And so that that's all that it it was it was a very interesting week uh, in the Midwest and uh, one I'll never forget.
0: Well, yeah, well, it's a great story. Um, I will link to in the notes and listeners can find that one.
1: Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people.
0: I tell all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going?
1: I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia.
0: Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox.
1: Life can hurt, but life is sweet.
0: Little way rated PG thirteen may be inappropriate for children under thirteen. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont+. Plus. So, then you, you. T- then you turn around and uh, you're in Mongolia, um, yeah. of all places. And uh, yes. <laughs> so, tell us a little bit about that journey. I want to point listeners also to your Instagram account, um, and they can follow along Adam Skolnick's World um, Travels at. Adam Skolnick, uh, on Instagram. And it's pretty fascinating. Uh, some of those photos from Mongolia, especially, but yeah, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. Well, Mongolia, I was there to update the lonely planet travel guide. So something I've done since 2007 is, uh, update lonely planet content. It used to be kind of straight updating of the book. Now you're kind of updating a content management system that becomes the book, but it also, uh, ends up online in various formats. Uh, but mostly it's the book, and so um, it was just a straight contract. i had done you know thirty or so of these kinds of contracts over the years, um, and it's just one way to make a living. So you know, making a living as a writer is is its own is its own endeavor. So there's the writing, and there's the finding of stories, and there's the making a living. And Lonely Planet has been a part of my personal matrix for a long time. For a period of time, it was really the It was 90 percent, 85 percent of what I was spending my time doing. And lately it's been less of that, uh, you know, with uh, with one breath, the first book and and um, being able to take a step back and do it less, which has enabled me to cover stories like the Hyperloop story and others. Um, So I'm trying to trying to tone it down, although I love these these jobs, too, because it takes me to a place like Mongolia. Mongolia is very interesting. Mongolia gets about one hundred thousand tourists a year which is pretty low on the international tour scene. And it tends to get people who've been a lot of other places. So you're getting veteran travelers who kind of want to go to someplace way out. And it is, you know, it, it's, it's a country with very few paved roads. A lot of off-roading happens. I mean, I, we spent weeks uh, driving around the country and almost all the time we were driving on two wheel tracks, like faint tracks in the desert. Uh, and so you stay the night and in uh with with nomadic herders and their families in in yurts they're called gurs in mongolia but they're basically the yurt the whole yurt structure that you might be familiar with that comes from mongolia comes from you know all the way back to chingis khan and his his crew um and so this my job was to was to update the gobi content so the gobi desert so we were kind of Around Gobi, the Gobi Desert, and this time I didn't go alone. I went with my girlfriend, who's also a great photographer, April Wong, and she's a vegan. So that was its own. <laughs> own oh, is that a challenge? Vegan in Mongolia is not really a thing. So no. you know, this is where people eat. Oh, Lord. They're, eating, they're eating goat and lamb and beef. Really, they don't even eat chicken and fish. So um, that was its own uh, dilemma. Uh, but it was really fascinating. We were there for the Nadam festival, so uh, Nadam festival. So it was horse racing and wrestling and archery and um, some amazing sand dunes and beautiful mountain scenery. We spent the time with an eagle hunter and his family. Um, we uh, just went all over the country and it was uh, it was magnificent. And people were so kind everywhere we went. Uh, and we even were invited to a wedding. I mean, it was just a remarkable, <laughs> remarkable experience.
0: That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Those, those photos are amazing. And um,
1: we were, yeah, we were legit lost in the Gobi Desert. <laughs> <laughs> so we so cool. like We were driving from tent to tent asking for directions. Oh, and, and several times we'd be riding through the desert on two-wheel tracks. And all of a sudden the driver would be like, wait, this isn't right. And then he'd see something we couldn't see. And he'd like just cross the desert to this faint track that we couldn't even have seen until we were on it. And he'd seen it out of the corner of his eye. He's like, no, this is the road. Meanwhile, there's like crisscrossing two wheel tracks all over the steppe, you know, the <laughs> grasslands. Yeah, but this is the right one. And we're like, okay. okay. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well,
0: so yeah. I mean, I'd probably be so out of my element in something doing something like that. But you have been in 45 countries now, and you have authored or co authored, I think, over. 30 of those books, uh, yeah. for Lonely Planet, which is pretty impressive. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, getting out of your element is part of it. You know, that's yeah. that, that for me, that was always a driving force of travel. And I think for the Lonely Planet reader, you know, Lonely Planet guides, a lot of it, people in, in the United States might not be as familiar with it, but Lonely Planet guides are like the, the most, they're the best selling travel guide in the world. They're those blue, stein, blue spine books, mm-hmm. uh, and they're geared towards the independent traveler. And back in the day when I was first kind of backpacking my way through Central and South America, it was those books and that spirit of kind of independent travel, get lost, get out, get out out of your element into someplace new, because that's how you kind of figure out who you are. And it's that relationship that I've, you know, kind of cultivated the relationship with yourself, the relationship with the world, um, being out there on your own. It, it connects you in a way with things yeah. uh, you, you don't necessarily tune into when you're at home.
0: I guess that brings us to kind of, uh, more, of more of your journalism that you've done, um, and you've written for ESPN, Men's Health, Outside BBC, um, but your New York Times sports reportage, which has been turned into your first non, uh, nonfiction book, One Breath, um, which I'll also link to, was based on your award-winning New York Times sports coverage of um, the death of one of the greatest American freedivers of all time. And uh, you've spoken about that at length, but you kind of went back to swimming, it appears, in your um, more recent coverage of another fascinating story about uh, a man who attempted to complete the Ocean 7. And the Ocean 7 is, can you kind of... uh, catch listeners up to what, what this gentleman was attempting to do in this fantastic story for New York Times about a, about a swimmer's two-year quest and a final 21-mile challenge.
1: Yes. Uh, so the Ocean Seven is basically the open water swim version of the Seven Summits. So the Seven Summits, as you might know, are the the seven highest peaks on each continent. And it's a kind of a thing for people to climb each of them, and if you get all of them, and you've achieved the seven summits, obviously Everest is the tallest, there's Denali in North America in Alaska, uh, you know, formerly known as Mount McKinley, now it's more referred to as Denali, and Alaska is North America, Aconcagua in South America, and the list goes on. In um, Ocean Seven is the open water equivalent, so that includes the Catalina Channel, the English Channel, those are the two most famous probably. There's the Kauai Channel, which is um, which is, from Oahu, Molokai to Oahu, there's the uh, Gibral- Strait of Gibraltar um, from Spain to Morocco. there's uh, Sugaro Strait in Japan. there's the Cooks Channel in between North and South Island in in uh, New Zealand. and there's the North Channel, which is what Antonio Arguez was attempting to complete, and that was the final of his seven seven ocean crossings that would have been the Ocean Seven. And so the North Channel, goes between uh northern ireland and scotland it's just outside of belfast and that's what he was swimming 21 miles from one end to the other it's the coldest it has really fierce jellyfish blooms it's the most arduous in terms of currents Um, all of the different channels have their own obstacles some have a preponderance of sharks some are shipping channels they all have their own issues um this is kind of far and away considered the hardest because of the water temperature it's 55 yeah. degrees fahrenheit uh, and that's the, and so and the, you know these open water swimmers can't wear wetsuits so they're in speedos and goggles and a cap uh you know swimsuit goggles and cap for men or women and uh, that's, that's it and so to be in that water for 12 13 14 hours or more um you know that's hard to do in those kind of water temperatures that's like hypothermic so the fact that you could even survive doing that is amazing. He was 58 years old. He's the oldest ever to complete the Ocean Seven. And his story was fascinating. And um, you know, I have this kind of strange, unofficial beat lately <laughs> for the first times. <laughs> it's like man versus water. Those are the stories yeah. that I've done for the New York Times. And it started with Nick, Nick Mavoli's story. Um, and it's really covered free diving, a couple of different occasions, and open water swimming. Those are the kind of two sports that I've covered for them. Amazing, this is amazing.
0: the latest. So you're out on the water and and uh, are you following like in a boat or are you are you reporting from land?
1: Yeah, no. So this was a desk reported job. Um, I had I had connected with Antonio through uh, a woman named Kim Chambers, who's one of America's yeah. best water swimmers. She was the sixth person. Antonio ended up being the seventh person to complete the Ocean Seven. Kim Chambers was the sixth person. Hmm. And she's based up in San Francisco. And she attempted to swim 100 miles from Sacramento to the San Francisco Bay. Right. And I wrote about that for the New York Times. And she g- gathered a group of swimmers together and said, you know, let's swim from uh, San Diego to Mexico and kind of as our own athletic protest against this anti-immigration rhetoric, and it was a fundraiser for the Calibri Center, which focuses on uh, solving the solving cases of missing persons in the desert, people who who migrants who travel from Mexico to the United States through the desert. Calibri Center is Arizona-based, and it's kind of. Um, a way to solve some of those cases, make sure there's closure for for people who've lost family members, haven't heard from them, and might might have gotten lost on the migration in the desert, which is super harsh. And so it was kind of a fundraiser, but it was also a little bit of look, you know, Trump. Not all of us agree with you. A lot of us actually believe in a more borderless system. They weren't advocating that either, but just a a system of 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 mutual reliance upon each other and love and openness. And so Antonio is um, Mexico City-based, he's Mexican. He attended Stanford University, but he is Mexican. He served in um, multiple government administrations in Mexico. Uh, And he's an educator, he's a a really interesting guy. And so he was kind of representing the Mexican swimmers and, and Kim was representing swimmers from North America, even though she's actually from New Zealand. Uh, but she's based out of San Francisco. So those are kind of the two leaders in this. And so I I interviewed Antonio for that story. And then I kept track of him because I knew he was going for the Ocean Seven. And so that's how I got involved with him and was able to follow along. When I first contacted him in Belfast, it didn't even look like he'd get his swim in because you have to book these swims in these in these channels. It's become more popular to try to attempt these channels, including the North Channel. And he had to book his space through the Irish Channel Swimming Association three years in advance. And even then, you only get one week weather window to make wow. the crossing. And if the weather's bad, the captain won't go out with you and, yeah. and he'll say, sorry, tough luck. And you lose your spot you lose your spot and you have to try to find another spot a couple of years time. Huh. And so um, he got really lucky. The weather was bad. It was bad. It was bad. And then one day it was it wasn't great, but it was it was the best they were going to get. And they went for it. And um, so I kind of kept track of him from the desk on this one. Wow. But wow. but but in terms of the swimmers, they always have an escort boat. They have a, a team of people that will uh, get them food and water. They're not allowed to touch him, but they'll hand a tray of food and water to him uh, to eat and drink. Uh, every 30 minutes, he'll stop for, for some water, a shot of protein gel, maybe some steamed potatoes, and um, then he'll keep swimming. And so on that boat included a coach who was keeping track of his strokes per minute, which is a key driver if, uh, trying to figure out if he's going to make, make it in time. Um, the tide shifts. So if you don't make a certain tidal window, the odds of, of you making it all the way are very low. And that really happens right at the end of the swim. So it's, it's one of those. That it's, it's a very difficult swim for a number of reasons. So he had a full support team and there was a photographer on that boat. Um, and I was able to keep in keep in touch with the, the team.
0: That's so cool. Yeah. It's a great story. Also, uh, linked up to that in the show notes. So, Thanks. so, um, but you, you haven't been busy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I mean, I think, I think it's a great, a great, um, way to kind of dovetail into your, into your more uh, literary endeavors, and talk a little bit about um, this fantastic new poetry collection that I had the pleasure to uh, get an advanced copy. So I'll, I'll just read. I'll just read a little bit of, of this Amazon um, description. Tag along on an insomnia adult journey through the cities, villages, and way-out wilds of Indonesia. In 2012, an award-winning journalist and travel writer embarked on what he thought would be a painless three-month assignment in a country he knew well, only to find his marriage and life threatened and his mind unravel as he groped for light in the darkness. story unfolded in 81 verses of poetry and prose that recalls Jack Kerouac's Mexico City Blues. And I have a feeling you wrote that blurb, Um, but... (laughs) <laughs> because you self-published this fantastic collection uh, titled Indolyrium, uh, which of course I will also link to. Um, so tell us uh, about a little bit about your journey to self-publishing and uh, kind of what inspired you to, to uh, kind of shift directions. The Writer Files is brought to you by the all-new Studio Press Sites, a turnkey solution that combines the ease of an all-in-one website builder with the flexible power of WordPress. It's perfect for authors, bloggers, podcasters, and affiliate marketers, as well as those selling physical products, digital downloads, and membership programs. If you're ready to take your WordPress site to the next level, see for yourself why over 200,000 website owners trust StudioPress. Go to rainmaker.fm slash studiopress now. That's rainmaker.fm slash studiopress. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published.
1: Well, uh, so this all happened in 2012. It's a true true story. So it's kind of, it's both poetry and prose, but also does tell a story, although albeit in a disjointed, kind of more abstract way. There is a beginning and an end. And in the middle is this kind of uh, trying to figure it all out. And um, I, I, so back, I mean, you know, a lot of maybe your your listeners don't realize this, but you and I met as activists in the Pacific Northwest in the 90s. And so as environmental activists back then, kind of an activist mindset, um, that's how we met. And then we both kind of started to drift towards more literary pursuits after that. Yeah. And um, and but my earliest stage of trying to become a writer was really just writing stream of consciousness. You know, I would come home from work after in those activist days and um, feel drained or whatever it would be. Put on some some jazz and just and just write. And I didn't realize you were doing similar things. I mean, you were also uh, interested in, in in that kind of thing. And we were interested in some of the same writers, the beat poets. And so it was just it was that was like my first experience, my first taste of creative writing in any way, or even writing in any way. Yeah. I wasn't trying to tell stories, but it was my first taste, and it kind of you know. I would I would get high off of it, you know, like I, felt, I fell in love with language, I fell in love with the process. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily be able to keep it up. Some days it would be like 10 minutes, some days it would be a couple of hours. But um, it was always this invigorating force uh, in my life. And so in 2012, I was going back to Indonesia for a job, and it would be a three-month-long job, which is long for these kinds of in- Lonely Planet walkabouts. And often I, I knew where I was going. I was going to kind of some, some of the outer islands, which, which would mean a lot of, a lot of solo time, not a lot of tourists. And, um, they're just a little bit more grueling. The, the, the services are a little bit less, uh, lower standard, but the beauty is is certainly there. And the hospitality is always there in Indonesia, but it was I just knew it would be a little more grueling and I'd have, to, I'd have to grind out some towns. And so one way to make the time pass and just keep me engaged in, in, in places that were familiar, was to kind of take up this practice again. I just thought, you know, you know, this what I'm going to do this time is I'm just going to write, do some free writing every day, and see what I come up with. And so that going into the assignment, I had that plan. And the assignment kind of went wrong right away. Like on my flight out, I almost I, 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 was, <laughs> oh, no. feeling, I was feeling sick on the plane. Oh, and I ended up like laying down in the tail fin galley and frightening the, the the flight attendants. And so that was like the beginning. That was the beginning of, the, oh, of the, uh, yeah. this misadventure right. that included, you know, I, got, I was in a horse cart crash, a car crash that I don't really even um, get into. I was surrounded by 50 villagers with spears who wanted to kill me because they thought I was somebody else. Um, you know, I, I kind of waded into this murky world of shark finning and the mafia that runs that. Um, I was in monsoon seas, uh, there was it rained for like 20 days straight. I had illnesses. I had all sorts of issues on the way back. I flew through a class nine, uh, typhoon and landed in Hong Kong and then was trapped in the airport for almost two days, uh, because of this typhoon. So everything about the trip kind of was, was off and in a lot of ways. And I've, I've reported from, you know, displaced people's camps and some war zones. And nothing has been as harrowing as that seemingly innocuous trip Jeez, yeah. in 2012. It just wouldn't end. So you know what what ended up coming. a lot of it was I had insomnia. I had a terrible case of insomnia through it all. And so that does drive you mad. And so uh, what you, what you have is this this journey that did it did unravel my marriage and and uh, and it and it did change my life. And so it's kind of dark. But you know, in you know, a lot of ways, I'm thinking of it now, releasing it now. And talking about the Hyperloop and the hate crime case and thinking of it now, it's like, I, I don't feel that dissimilar now. You know, in this, in this time period where it feels like the sky is falling and everything is bizarre and everything's upside down yeah. and dark, um, you still have to look for the light yeah. in life. Because yeah. that's the only way that you're going to be inspired, in my opinion. So for me, that's what I do. And so, this was, so through it all, even in these darker days, you could see me look for the light. And um and that's you know, in terms of self-publishing, you know, I never really tried any other way with this collection. And I just thought it's not a novel, it's not straightforward, I can you know, it, yeah, it's not a, a nonfiction, straightforward book, it's not a straight ahead novel, it's nothing like that. So the path to publishing through a major publisher. Is pretty slim. Uh, The people who are getting uh, good poetry deals these days have huge Instagram followers. (laughs) And and even then what you end up reading on their Instagram, you know, not to knock the poetry, but it's a lot more, it's a lot more straight ahead. It's a lot less contemplative or weird. When you read a poem from a lot of these poets, you, you don't have to wonder what they're trying to say. And when you read some of the stuff in In Delirium, you're gonna probably have to wonder what I'm trying to say sometimes. Sure. And not all the time, but sometimes. But that's the poetry you and I grew up on. You know? yeah. it, you'd read something weird and then you reread it and then you'd think about it and that's the whole point. And so I think poetry is changing with this new social media. Uh, but for me anyway, I, I wound up with this collection and I wanted to share it. And I figured, you know, I've never tried the self-publishing world, I might as well try it. And and it seems like the perfect thing to try it with because it's it's um, in, you know it's not necessarily a mainstream text. So why not put it out there and see what happens?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it is um, it is pretty uh, as I've described it, kind of bewitching um, in places and 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 a fantastic uh, read. So I will encourage listeners to to find it in delirium. And you know, I mean, you mentioned the social media. Uh, element of uh, some of our best-selling poets today. And I don't think, um, you know, Corso, Verlinghetti, any of our um, beat poets really had like half a million Instagram followers or Tumblr <laughs> followers. Um, you know, they were kind of, I don't know, there was just something,
1: something well, very there's different. Always, there's always been a gateway, right? There's always been a gatekeeper, Sure. Um, In 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 media, there's always been a gatekeepers in media. So back in those days, the gatekeepers tended to be publishers or people who knew um, literature very well. And there's always been gate crashers and the beat poets kind of crashed the gate because and the way they did that was they created a movement and the movement itself um, grew through viral poetry readings Mm -hmm. and, and And, you know, obviously, Ferlinghetti was a leader in that. He was a little bit older than some of these guys like Kerouac and Ginsburg. And so he was able to kind of be the representative. I mean, this is my limited understanding of it, but I believe that's what happened. And so they kind of crashed the gate because they also produced great work. And so now the gate is just different. It's now the gatekeeper is your brand, you know, is your Mm -hmm. brand enough to... Can we can we get somewhere with this brand? And so, you know, a good example of of self-published poetry that has gone extremely well is uh, Milk and Honey by Rupi Carr. And Rupi Carr, as far as I understand it, self-published Milk and Honey. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she had one post of hers on Instagram go crazy viral. And um, because of that, she got a print deal. Uh, and maybe they they did a digital book with that print deal as well. She got a print deal, and it's a, um it's a mega hit. Her stuff's a mega. hit. It's very intimate. It's very beautiful stuff, and and it's resonated. And so you know, there it, it's interesting how that has changed. But there's always been a gatekeeper to to access. Uh, and now the gate the gatekeeper is just a digital one yeah. for poetry, anyway. For sure, for sure. This episode is brought to you by Been Verified. Help chip away at the uncertainty that comes with online dating and use beenverified.com, a leading platform for online background searches and people search reports. With their powerful search tools and extensive database, you could easily gather information about potential dates, which may help you find peace of mind before taking that next step. You can never be too safe when it comes to dating. Get 20% off today to help take control of your dating game. Visit beenverified.com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Stitch Fix. Love trying new fashion trends, but find it all a little intimidating? With Stitch Fix, refreshing your wardrobe has never been easier. They figured out the new 2024 trends, so you don't have to. Just give your stylist your size, style, and budget preferences, and they'll send you five just-for-you pieces, plus outfit recommendations and pro styling advice. Refresh your 2024 wardrobe now and get started today at stitchfix.com.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, the beats were a scene and a movement, um, you're right, that went viral in a way that uh, literature uh, probably doesn't do very often. Um, But when it does, it's cool to see, like, um, with the other poet that you mentioned. But, yeah, I mean, these are interesting times, for sure. Um, I think we probably need uh, more great poetry now than we have ever. Um, It's a great... It's a great kind of a great way to escape into something that's both literary, digestible. You know, um, some of these uh, great poets that we've read. You know, even I, even when I'm just thinking back to like something simple, like uh, the Tao Te Ching, or something. You know, very digestible, very short, contemplative pieces. Um, I still go back to and, and still uh, savor those quiet moments to, you know, and they're easy to read. And, and you know, the Eastern Eastern um, stuff is, is always fascinating to me, but kind of gets me out of my head and um, might help help other writers to just kind of unplug for a minute because these are weird times, man.
1: I agree. You know, Dada Ching is something I read almost every day. In the morning, I'll read, I'll read a verse. Sometimes I'll stay on the same verse for weeks on end uh just trying to try because it'll either resonate or i'm trying to figure out what it might mean and the meaning might change over the course of the days um it's it's something that ever and you know you turned me on to the data chain and that's something that i still use as a tool uh you know i fear a little bit that that contempl- contemplative aspect of poetry is kind of losing out with social media now we're in this i think um you shared an article with me we're talking about the post post literate age where where it really social media is is kind of almost closer to oral yeah. uh, storytelling than yep. it is to uh, to you know, literary storytelling. Um, it's really just a way to communicate oral stories, easily easily digestible, easy to forget. Um, and, you know, I think I, Matthew Zebruder was quoted in uh, The New Yorker recently, you know, talking about poetry. I think what he, he said, he wrote it in his book, Why Poetry, that he defines a poet as uh, who's a writer who is prepared to reject all of the purposes in favor of the possibilities of language freed from utility mm-hmm. and you know that's perfectly that, that kind of cap- encapsulates why i loved writing in delirium and why i still love poetry is that i'm not trying to use language in any other way than as a as a natural expression of the moment and um but what that what you end up with isn't something that's always easy easy to understand. And so in this day and age, are we kind of throwing out not just poetry, but books and movies that that are maybe harder to understand, like the old 1970s films in in the United States or European cinema, um, all in favor of of stuff that is easy to digest, Hmm. that we can understand and talk about and communicate in 140 characters or less. You know, these it's interesting to, to see how maybe this new technology and social media is changing our aesthetic and and where that goes
0: yeah yeah for sure i will i'll reference the uh i think the article that you were talking about about um literature and language and the way we're changing is do- the title of it is uh donald trump the first president of our post-literate age um <laughs> not to harp on that point uh but i just wanted to read a a uh, just a, a quote from it. We begin to see how the age of social media resembles the preliterate world. Um, and the oral world that they're referring to is, the, you know, time when before writing um, it was important to convey a, a message quickly. And, and then it was forgotten. Right. Um, so storytellers kind of became uh, people who could remember, remember and pass along memorable stories and wisdom and good news were the um, kind of the heroes of the day. But um, of course, as we've you know, changed from oral to written and now kind of back to now this um, social media age, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and other platforms are fostering an emerging linguistic economy that places a high premium on ideas that are pithy, clear, memorable, and repeatable. That is to say, viral. Complicated, nuanced thoughts that require context don't play very well on social platforms, obviously. Uh, but a resonant hashtag can have extraordinary influence. And... Unquote. But, you know, I, I inserted some of my own uh, thoughts in there. But it's so obvious uh, that that we're, we're, we've kind of uh, devolved a little bit. It seems like yeah. a, good, a good time to kind of <sighs> take a deep breath, man, go outside, uh, read a book, you know. Yeah. Know.
1: And book sales are down with all this madness around Donald Trump. I don't know if you knew that, but they're down a little bit because um, everyone's consuming so much trump-driven media but you know at the same time there's been great journalism that has come up in the wake of of trump taking office yeah and not to harp on it too much but you know the charlottesville situation and uh you know my story coming out about hate crimes in the heartland and then this uh donald trump's basically tacit approval of these groups uh going into charlottesville you know basically putting them on the same level as, as people who are anti-hate and showed up to protest their hate. And it, it's fascinating and, and heartbreaking and, uh, dangerous. And yeah. so, you know, but one thing you can't say is he, you can't say he's not a master. I mean, he is a master of this post literate age. He knows how to get that hashtag moving. He knows how to create oral histories that aren't even true. And, um, it's hard for journalism to keep up with that because we are a literary medium in certain ways. So yeah. uh, it's been you know, we've been able to journalists have have done some amazing work and have been able to cover it Truly. extremely well. Yeah. Um, but you know, to take it to to for people for I think readers and for kind of everyday people trying to keep up with things, it becomes overwhelming. and it does. Then often it it devolves into the most simple simple version that they can easily digest and that's what they take away and that's just not the best way to uh, To try to figure out what's happening in this world, you know, you should we need to take a little more time and 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 uh, Digest things in a more nuanced way. I think for us to really fix what's wrong here And that's not just this country, but it's a lot of places in the world. But of course, we're having a moment
0: yeah, I mean we've talked about this before, but um, the need for this this great journalism is greater than ever, and it seems like we're rising to the occasion. So maybe there's a backlash against um, the kind of shallow um, or you know so called fake um, headlines that that you see in in your newsfeed, and you know people like Facebook are trying to battle against these uh, forces of of. Coercion, or at least um, misinformation. I've talked about it at length on this show with um, neuroscientist Michael Gribko. I'm also republishing um, those uh, serially over the the next few weeks. So I'll be uh, republishing his thoughts on uh, Writer's Block and then um also a segment that we did on fake news so uh,
1: well that well that's the key right so the fake news is, is is a great example of trying to use this this uh reduced capacity for nuanced storytelling yeah they're, they're exploiting that with bullshit, and um and what you end up with is a siloed media which obama spoke about before he uh before he left office the fact that we're not all reading the same stuff no and some of us are reading facts, and some of us are reading stuff that is not fact. <laughs> you know that really? are that are lies or conflated stories that that don't tell a full factual picture. Right. And that's just the nature of things, you know. Like and and now it's it's almost like uh, it's it's almost rude when you point out to somebody, no, you're what you're saying isn't even true. That you're not even reading facts. And and when you don't, when you can't deliver facts, when 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 you have a president who's harping on fake news and, and, and exploiting actual fake news, harping, cre- trying to tag real news as fake and then exploiting fake stories as real, uh, then you have a public that doesn't know which way is up and it becomes more exploitable. And that's where we're at right now. So it's, you know, writers who are listening and readers who are listening, Uh, you know, we count all of us, what we're doing matters. We need to, we need to keep telling the true stories because that's the way out of this and just hope for the best.
0: Yeah. Yeah. those silos you talk about and the bubbles that we all kind of get in, um, you know, are kind of hard to break out of, but it's important for us to be, I think more vigilant than ever, obviously. Um, and also to, uh, you know, go to the, go to the uh, experts, go to the um, sources that aren't um, known for publishing (laughs) um, fake uh, or um, information that is, uh, you know, borderline, (sighs) Uh, it's just kind of overwhelming. And I know that we all are uh, kind of dealing with, unfortunately, in the um, iPhone era, uh, just an an onslaught of notifications it's almost as if you know t- you know you'll get like five or ten headlines pop up on your phone and it's as you feel as if you know I I do at least get a kind of a um a little bit of a shot of adrenaline when I see something terrible pop up there and uh, you know yeah. I don't always want to click through to read it but it's like it's it's as if you know it already you know you I read the headline so it must be thing or
1: well to get super philosophical like I, what scares me about this whole thing is yeah that what you know i think gribco and you guys t- you talked about it uh how you know each click is its own little uh you know what's a, it, it not endorphin but its own little uh what you, what's the horm- you get like a little hormone oh boost. you get a,
0: yeah you get a little bit of uh a dopamine um. yeah
1: you know, a dopamine hit with each, with each click and that's why people love likes and you know when yeah. a notification pops up And yeah, we are getting inundated Um, and it's scary. You know, I, I, I fear these phones also, there's another level to it, which is we love our tech, therefore we love the corporations that make the tech. And, you know, there's something about, you know, growing up Gen X where, I mean, it's very funny for me to be defending institutions like mainstream media and, and, and uh, now I kind of look at, at mainstream media as this institution that has to be preserved. because of the damage of misinformation and, um, and the skepticism, you know, mainstream media had a healthy skepticism, I think always, you know, it's, it's mischaracterized as this tool of corporate America. It's not necessarily true. You know, good journalists on the ground have always been the most skeptical people in the world. And that's what we need, like that healthy skepticism that I think, you know, there's this hostility towards mainstream media, but at the same time, uh, uh, this coziness with corporations that make our, that make our, uh, tools that we rely on, like our smartphones. And there's something that's imbalanced there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I picked up, uh, on tyranny by Timothy Snyder, uh, was given to me as a gift and, uh, I just was reading a the little, uh, a little light reading. Yeah. But it's like a <laughs> manif- it's kind of interesting. It's, I mean, it's very, it's very now, um, pointed at kind of, um, the era that we're in um but uh defend institutions is uh the second uh, little chapter there these are very bite-sized chapters they're like two or three pages each and um I'll just read the, the little blurb here. It's institutions that help us to preserve decency. They need our help as well. Do not speak of our institutions unless you make them yours by acting on their behalf. Institutions do not protect themselves. They fall one after the other unless each is defended from the beginning. So choose an institution you care about, a court, a newspaper, a law, a labor union, and take its side.
1: Um, actually gives me hope. You know, when people act out, speak up against uh, against what happened there that gives me hope. And so, you know, it's funny to talk about the, the way to take on tyranny is to save institutions that used to be the ones we suspected of tyranny, <laughs> you know, but, it, but everything's upside down, man. It's all yeah. upside down. Yeah.
0: We are definitely in an upside down moments. We are having some issues. So, um, I think to wrap, um, I hope, uh, <laughs> listeners are still with us i understand if you're not um adam's uh new fantastic poetry collection in delirium is available now uh on the amazon uh on the amazon i'll just say on the amazon on the amazon <laughs> on amazon.com i'll link to it in the show notes you can find adam skolnick's uh author page there as well which um also features his fantastic um non-fiction, uh, one Breath, Free Diving, Death, and the Quest to Shatter Human Limits. And I will link to adamskolnick.com. Check out at adamskolnick on Instagram if you want to follow his journeys around the world, which I do uh, with great anticipation. Uh, fantastic photography on there also. Uh, other than that, best of luck with everything. Where are you off to next?
1: Argentina is next. So I'm heading to Argentina uh, to do a sto- to do a Lonely Planet update, and then I'll be in the Pacific Northwest doing a story for long reads. My first thing for long reads, um, on prison reform.
0: All right, cool, man.
1: Based out of Seattle, yeah,
0: fantastic. All right, well, looking forward to um, what you have coming up next, and uh, come back and wrap with us again when you have a chant when you're
1: back uh, stateside. Thanks, man. Anytime. All right, take care, brother. You too.